Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Barking Irons Spirits. Applejack is back. And Barking Irons is reinventing the original American craft spirit for modern New Yorkers. Distilled upstate, then barrel-aged and bottled in Brooklyn, Barking Irons Applejack is always made from only 100% of the finest New York apples. Now on Tuesday, March 17th, 2020, you can join me, Greg Young, from the Bowery Boys at Housing Works Bookstore and Cafe for a very special night of New York City trivia, partnered with Barking Iron Spirits. And at the event, specialty New York-themed Applejack cocktails will be served to those responsible drinkers over age 21. Get your tickets now at BarkingIronSpirits.com and stay tuned to the commercial break at the middle of our show today for a bonus trivia question that you might hear me read on March 17th. The Bowery Boys episode 311, Uprising, The Shirtway Strike of 1909. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With a story of solidarity and workers' rights from a very inspiring source, an uprising of young women and girls from the year 1909. They call it the Uprising of the 20,000, the Shirtway Strike of 1909. Right. And so to tell that story, we need to head down to the Lower East Side in late November of 1909 to witness this dramatic event that would actually help transform and improved the working conditions for thousands of New Yorkers who toiled in the city's huge garment industry. Many of these were first-generation Americans, and most of them, like Greg just said, were women. This is also the story of a 23-year-old Ukrainian immigrant named Clara Lemlich, who found an unjust working world in New York when she immigrated here to this country, and along with her colleagues and partners, rallied other women to join in the fight for safer and fairer working conditions. So this is really a story about immigration and also workers who were being taken advantage of. But there's also a story here about other women mostly middle-class and upper-class educated women who joined their cause and combined it in a really interesting way with their other big struggle, suffrage, the right to vote. 
In fact, at the end of this show today, we're going to leave the studio and mm. head up to the New York Historical Society to check out a new exhibit of theirs called Women March and speak with the curator, Valerie Paley, the director of the Center of Women's History at the New York Historical Society. So join us as we visit the factories and hit the streets for the shirtwaist strike of 1909, the uprising of the 20,000. Now, Tom, that was an ambitious setup, to be to be honest, and especially about an event that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. So where do we begin the story here? Where do we situate? Well, the story takes place, as we mentioned, in the city's huge garment industry in the first decade of the 20th century, when that industry was largely centered around the Lower East Side and today's Soho, East Village, around Washington Square, generally speaking, that area. And several factors are at play here. The city's population is exploding because this is 1909, so Mm -hmm. consolidation had happened in 1898. By 1900, the population of New York was 3.4 million people. New York, the five boroughs. Now the five boroughs. But by 1910, it would jump from 3.4 to 4.8 million, adding about 1.4 million people in 10 years. And much of that, of course, was due to immigration. And by this particular decade, the Mm -hmm. first decade of the 20th century, this was mostly Eastern European Jews and immigrants from Southern Europe. Especially Italy. And as we've discussed in many, many shows, many of these newly arriving New Yorkers were passing through the Lower East Side. They were finding their first apartments in its tenements. They were also finding their first jobs uh, or jobs that were open to them. And it goes without saying that this neighborhood was dark, it was dirty, it was horribly overcrowded. And those conditions uh, existed both at home and also where they worked. And we're talking about men and women entering the workplace here, right? Right. Today's story mostly focuses on female workers, but really, at this time, anybody in the family who could find work, for the, for the most part, would work. Well, children, even. Uh, as, yeah. Yes, notably and horribly children. And what kinds of jobs exactly were they were they seeking out? Were they finding? Well, they were taking all kinds of jobs. We've spoken about these jobs on various shows. For example, in our recent show on the bagel, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about immigrants who were working in pretty miserable conditions in the neighborhood bakeries. But the the city's largest industry at this time was the garment industry, or you know, it was also known as the rag trade or the needle trades. And it was these occupations that dominated the New York industrial landscape here, right? Yeah, and and really had a national impact. I mean, more Americans wore made-in-New-York clothes than clothes from any other city. By 1910, in fact, consider this. The city's garment industry produced 70% of women's clothing worn in the United States and 40% of men's clothing. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate how much that New York during this period was essentially a clothing town. Right. That that is one of our major exports out of the city. And I guess people still associate, you know, the fashion industry Mm -hmm. um, with New York. Yeah, but Tom... That's all like Project Runway kind of stuff here. We're not talking. Don't knock it. We're not talking like 
couture here. We're talking the manufacturing of everyday clothing. Right. The mass production of anything that you or a family member would be wearing, could be made, and probably was made Mm -hmm. in New York City. I mean, dresses, shirts, pants, coats, suits for men, shirtwaists for ladies— Most of those items were made in a sort of wild mess, you know, of factories and sweatshops, most of which were located on the Lower East Side and in Soho. But coming back up, you mentioned the word shirtwaist, which was a very popular garment back in the day, but maybe unfamiliar to a lot of people. Right. These were lovely, you know, button-down shirts worn by women. They were often tucked into the waistband of a skirt that a woman would be wearing. So kind of like a button-down shirt that a man would wear, this is a button-down shirt for a woman. And many of these had embroidery or ruffles down the front, um, but they were considered sort of everyday wear. Blouses, if you will. Yeah, white blouses. Yeah. You're kind of wearing a shirt waist right now, Greg. I mean, it's a blue. Bit. I don't have a Spanx on to give it that kind of like hourglass shape, but and yes. you need more ruffles. <laughs> But by this period that we're talking about, 1909, these shirtwaists were being made in dedicated factories specific to their manufacture. What uh, You just said factories, but there were still smaller sweatshops mm, that okay. existed at the time. And mm-hmm. the sweatshop had really dominated the garment industry in the late 19th century. And by sweatshop in this context, to be clear, because a a factory can be considered a sweatshop, but in this context, you're referring specifically to a garment-making location that's centered in somebody's home, like in a tenement apartment, usually, or in a room that's not designed for industry. But by 1909, there were a couple things that had changed. First of all, construction, building construction had changed. There was now the ability to construct with steel frames, which allowed for, you know, larger, wide open spaces with higher ceilings. Uh, We've talked about how, you know, department stores like on Ladies Mile uh, and on Broadway would take advantage of those big open spaces. But so, too, would factories, Mm -hmm. because that would mean that you could bring more people and line them up at the tables And many of those buildings are still standing today on the Lower East Side and in Little Italy and Chinatown and Soho and NoHo. Many of them throw you off because they have like lovely, you know, embellished cast iron facades, but they're still factories. Okay, so construction had changed. And and also the industry had changed Mm. because of those big spaces, larger factories um, using new tools like the industrial sewing machine to cut and produce these items faster really changed the industry. So many of these factories by 1909 were taking up entire floors of buildings, you know, where dresses and shirtwaists and suits and pants and everything, the fabric could be cut and sewn and produced right there in the same spot. According to the American Social History Project, by 1910, this workforce was 70% female Mm -hmm. in, in the garment industry. More than 56% of them were Jewish and 34 were Italian, you know, really reflecting the immigrant population at the time. About 50% of the women were under the age of 20. And these weren't just immigrant women. There were also African-American women working in these trades as well. Yeah, African-American women um, comprised a small percentage of garment workers. However, they, for the most part, were forced to sew at home because they were not permitted to actually work with these other ladies in the factories. But the working conditions in these 
factories Mm -hmm. were not ideal. We're certainly not up to any kind of level that we would be comfortable or familiar with today. They were really overcrowded. Um, It was very stressful for the employees. You you often had bosses who were pressuring, you know, the, the workers to sew faster and faster, also harassing them, making unwanted advances. We're talking about very long hours with hardly any time off, working six days a week. And then to add insult to injury, compensation was totally unfair. It was biased against female employees who were paid far less than male employees. And it was also physically exhausting because many of the women who were working with sewing machines were actually required to lug up their own sewing machines. They had to own the sewing machine? And sometimes other materials and thread and such as well. Some of these women had to actually run around the Lower East Side and Soho lugging a sewing machine on their back. I mean, I complain about lugging around my laptop. Can you imagine lugging around a sewing machine? With poor access to mass transit. Six days a week. And you could be working for 10 or 11 hours a day. I mean, today, many men and women actually work two or three jobs. Mm-hmm. So they can probably relate to a horrible workload Yes, like that. that's true. And you said that they were paid less. I'm afraid to ask how much less than men. Well, starting pay was typically around 50 cents a day or about $3 for a week at factories like, for example, the Gotham Shirtwaist Company. That translates to about $85 a week in 2020 dollars, or about $14 a day for a 10 or 11 hour day. So that was the starting pay for an entry level position referred to as the learners. They comprised about 25% of the workforce. One step up from the learners were the operators um, who operated the machines. They were paid about $7 to $12 a week, or about today, around $200 to $340 a week. And about half of the workforce were operators. And was that as high as it went in terms of salaries? or uh, In terms of positions, typically that was about as far as a woman could go, because above that... You usually had men who held very skilled jobs at making patterns and samples. They would actually subcontract those those jobs to the women who were learners, mm-hmm. ironically. Uh, but those higher level positions were held by men. So what you just described is kind of a framework that you would find perhaps in any factory in the garment district during this period. Unfortunately, yes. For example, at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, which was located over in the Ash Building uh, near Washington Square, that company, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, uh, had been founded by two men, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, in 1900, and they had moved into the ninth floor of that Ash Building two years later uh, in 1902. They quickly became very successful and took over the eighth floor in 1906, and then two years later, they took over the tenth floor as well. By the time of our story, Mm -hmm. they are known as, in fact, the Shirtwaist Kings. Their their company is producing a thousand of these shirtwaists a day. And and I'm quite sure that those conditions were quite poor also. In order to succeed, they needed to sell them as cheaply as possible, so they were trying to produce them as Mm -hmm. cheaply as possible. And that translated to long days, low wages, and this constant pressure to get their work done faster. Notably, many of the bosses were also concerned about theft, which led them to do, you know, to carry out bag inspections and ominously uh, over a triangle to also lock some of the exit doors to force people to come and go through one centralized Mm -hmm. door. Now, 
as companies were becoming more competitive, just generally speaking in the country, they all thought less about the work, these worsening conditions of their workers, and they thought more about that bottom line. And these men who own these garment factories, they were part of this as well. And so thus, of course, the very first major labor unions started forming, and they started forming around the 1860s. And these organizations had been formed decades before the story takes mm-hmm. place in order to, to help out specific industries. Well, you did have labor unions that were specific to professions, but you also had groups like the Knights of Labor, which formed in 1869, which was open to all types of workers, from coal miners to steel workers. But when do we start seeing organizations and labor movements taking hold inside the garment industry? Well, here in New York in 1900, the year 1900, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union was formed at the Labor Lyceum, Tom, at 64 East 4th Street. Now, for locals, that is in the East Village next door to La Mama Theater. Oh, and it still stands there. And it still stands there, yeah. And they were united for a brief time in pushing against the abuses of that industry. For a brief time, why would happen? Well, the problem therein of this particular union lies in the reality of the garment making process, which you had inferred earlier. Some roles were more valued than others. Mm. So such as the role of the cutter. The person who literally cut the fabric, who were mostly men. Who were mostly men and would monopolize the voice of the union here. Thus, women's voices were often not heard. It may not come as a surprise to you, Tom, to realize that men did not take women seriously in the workplace generally, and nor here in the labor boardroom. Are you saying they were mansplaining, even in the unions? <laughs> Lots of mansplaining. Well, they didn't consider women to be real employees because m- many women, most women, would actually leave at some point to go raise families. But still, think of the thousands of young women, about more than half of whom are under the age of 20, mm-hmm. who's whose livelihood um, and whose families depended on them to bring home money, and they were working for these garment shop owners who really probably didn't care very much if injuries came up, if life events happened, if they became pregnant. They were out of there. You fought against sexual advances that were made to you at the workplace. You could have been fired. You had no protections here. Eventually, there would be a a woman-led ladies' waste-makers union that was formed, and it was even located on East Broadway in the Lower East Side, but it was quite weak, very few members, and was essentially gone by 1905. So they were gone by 1905. Our story's 1909. Mm -hmm. So what had changed by 1909? Well, let me introduce you to the heroine of our story, because her biography will help explain that. Her name, as we have said earlier, is Clara Lemlich. She was born on March 28th, 1886, in the town of Horodok in the Ukraine to a religiously devout Jewish family. As a teen, she was already working in the garment industry back in the Ukraine, making buttonholes for tailors. In 1903, her family immigrated to New York, mostly to escape the Russian pogroms that would eventually target her own hometown. So so Clara is part of this whole wave of Eastern European Jews escaping those pogroms, and she arrived in 1903 when she was 17 years old. Yes. Now, given her skills back home, she went right to work in the garment shops here as a teenager. You know, by 1906, jumping ahead a little bit, when she was 20, she was actually a very skilled draper. 
Now, given her natural curiosity back home in social political movements and literature, she also sought out any semblance of organization in New York for workers' rights, already here as a young woman. And that year, in 1906, she and some other like-minded women resurrected that ladies' workers' union on East Broadway and was now called Local 25. That's cool that she's, what, like 20 or something, and Mm -hmm. she's able to resurrect this union in 1906. Had something changed? Were they, was it more successful the second time around? Well, what changed is the calendar. For in 1907 came the panic of 1907, which was an economic downturn that eventually trickled down into the garment industry and many other industries in the Lower East Side. This was also a watershed year for big labor issues like child labor. That year, the U.S. Congress chartered the National Child Labor Committee, which featured such directors as the Henry Street Settlement's Lillian Wald and photographer Lewis Hine, who was famous for capturing images of thousands of working children. So the reformers, the ref- that changed. The reformers, a big year for reform for the reform movement. But then also 1907, it was the was the year that immigration peaked in the United States, with 1.3 million people entering Ellis Island alone. Many of whom undoubtedly passed through the Lower East Side and perhaps even got jobs in this somewhat chaotic garment industry. Yeah, they certainly did. And so this was the year that really fired up Clara Lemlich, and it also... Got her fired, actually, in many cases, as she would crusade for better working conditions uh, wherever she worked and then would most usually then be let go. She would march through factory floors, sometimes jumping up on tables themselves, rallying women, very Norma Ray here a little bit, rallying women to the cause of their own well-being and even helped form picket lines against employers. And when was that? 1907. It was in this year that she led her first strike at the Weissen and Goldstein factory for 10 weeks here. Wow. The following year, 1908, she even led a larger strike to, to her own workplace at the Gotham Waste Factory. Talk about chutzpah. <laughs> right? I mean, the, what confidence this woman had. By this point, she's 22, 23 years of age when she's in the middle of all this. Now, now let's flash forward now even to the summer of 1909, the year of our focus today. The number of strikes just throughout the city in all different industries is on the rise, particularly in almost every aspect of the garment industry because unions were racking up victories. But the response from companies themselves was also getting a little bit more harsh during this period. And uh, that's an understatement. They were hiring detectives to infiltrate and root out agitators and sometimes employed hired muscle to rough up and brutally beat up picketers, men or women. And let's just say that the the police were sometimes not really on the side of the peaceful protesters. Oh, who no, no. We're often not even breaking any laws. I mean, they had a right to be out there picketing. It was a public demonstration. And yet they could be arrested by police who were getting paid off. Yeah, they could be harassed or arrested by the police. Now, in September of 1909, Lemlick led a strike at her Again, at her place of employment, this time at the Lewis Lysersons factory on West 17th Street. Uh Uh-oh, and Clara's working here. 
Mm-hmm. I imagine that this did not ingratiate her to the, the factory's owners. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, on September 10th, following a whole day on the picket line, Lemlick was heading home and was horribly beaten by two men who were hired by the factory. They beat her so badly that she broke six ribs. She managed to get home, but she had to conceal her injuries from her parents because she was afraid that had they discovered the severity of those injuries, that they would have essentially pulled her out of this line of activism. So now it's not even her work life that's in danger. It's actually her own physical life that is being endangered by her own activism. Right, because she's speaking up. And yet she and other organizers, other activists here, continued on. And there were many other young women like her. We're focusing on her, but there are many stunning examples of brave young women during this period. Clara was arrested 17 times just, just during the period of this Lysersen strike. Now, in October of that year, 1909, she organized another major strike at a factory you previously mentioned, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Over in the Ash Building, just east of Washington Square. Right. Now, you mentioned the owners, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, who tried some rather unconventional ways to break up the strike, at one point even hiring prostitutes as scab workers to replace the striking women here. But the strikers also had a few cards up their shirtwaist sleeve, if you will, and a clever bit of headline grabbing, the president of the Women's Trade Union League, a woman named Mary Dreyer, she got arrested in the protests. And she was prominent enough that this arrest made all of the newspapers and actually made the factory owners and the police look really bad. Because the police officers had not, quote, realized that she was sort of a high society woman. Yeah, a, quote, prominent woman, right? right? So, and had they realized this, they would never have arrested her. I mean, it's it's terrible to think that like, oh, it was okay to rough up poorer immigrant women, but now that this woman had some respectability, anyway, as a result of this and really their success and their dogged determination here, thousands more joined this union. So this very small union that they had revived down here on East Broadway, now thousands were now participating in this. And by November of 1909, they were a force to be reckoned with. But if these strikes carried on for weeks, I mean, how could these these normal employees, these women from rather impoverished families, how would they be able to not go to work? Yes, I mean, this couldn't go on forever, right? People were getting very restless. What they needed is like a, something like a breaking point, right? They needed a major action. They needed a sense of power. And most importantly, to get that, to get to that breaking point, they needed headlines and they needed attention. And they got that on November 22nd, 1909, at a massive rally at Cooper Union mm -hmm. over in Astor Place, which would unite many leaders of the American labor union movement. And these were not just garment industry leaders either. These were from all aspects of American labor. In fact, one of the speakers was Samuel Gompers, the president of the American Federation of Labor, America's largest labor organization, and probably America's most famous labor organizer. They weren't necessarily of one voice here. In fact, Gompers didn't even believe that an industry-wide strike of shirtwaist workers would be effective. 
Well, Gompers may not have, but somebody else who was present certainly believed that. Yes, and her name was Clara Lemlich. She, at a certain point of this rally, took to the stage, spoke to the audience in Yiddish, an incredible speech that lives large in American labor union history. She said, quote, I am a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I am tired of listening to speakers who talk in general terms. What we are here for is to decide whether we shall strike or not to strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be declared now. And how was she met? She captivated the room here. Thousands immediately took a pledge to unite in a general strike the following day. For all of the shirtwaist employees from all of the shops in the city to go on strike for a united call Mm -hmm. for better wages and better conditions. The New York Times the next day on the front page declared in a headline, 40,000 call out and women strike. Now, perhaps typical, the article attributes all of that enthusiasm and motivation to Gompers, to Samuel Gompers as the one who was motivating this particular strike. Of course. Clara's name wasn't even mentioned in the article, but those 40,000 women, they would know her name. And will join them to go on strike after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. This episode of The Bowery Boys is sponsored by Barking Irons Spirits. Now, since America's earliest days, apples have been prized for their spirit-making qualities. Back then, hard cider was a cleaner alternative to water, so our ancestors were making and drinking a lot. But cider wasn't strong enough for them, so they decided to take it one step further. And through a process known as jacking, these innovative imbibers created a spirit known as Applejack. Today, Barking Iron Spirits is reinventing the original American craft spirit for modern New Yorkers. Distilled upstate, then barrel-aged and bottled in Brooklyn, Barking Iron's Applejack is always made from only 100% of the finest New York apples. Served per tradition, at 100 proof and aged in charred oak barrels, it's the perfect spirit for a fan of fine American Applejack or the whiskey or bourbon drinker seeking something new. A drink tough enough for New York, even if New York isn't as tough as it used to be. Applejack is back. And you, responsible drinkers, aged 21 and older, you'll get a chance to sample some of Barking Iron Spirits and hang out with me for a delightful night of New York City trivia at Housing Works Bookstore and Cafe on Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. Now that's St. Patrick's Day, so get ready for a few Irish-themed trivia questions, such as this one. What influential 19th century New York archbishop shares his name with a popular film director of the 1980s and 90s? That question and many more are in store on Tuesday, March 17th. So grab your tickets at BarkingIronSpirits.com and follow at BISpirits on Instagram to get a sneak peek at more of the types of trivia questions that I'll be asking. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp makes connecting with a professional counselor convenient, and you can get help on a schedule and a pace that works for you. And it all happens in a safe and private online environment. Secure phone and video sessions, and you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp has 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, professional counselors who are specialized in all aspects in all kinds of fields, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and more. And it's available worldwide. Bowery Boys listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code BOWERY. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Bowery. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. 
That's betterhelp.com slash Bowery. So we left this story at Cooper Union with this rousing spectacle of unification of Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of women deciding to go on strike. But the next day, when everyone kind of slept on it, was this really going to come to pass? I mean, this was a major undertaking by so many people. Well, on the morning of Tuesday, November 23rd, 1909, approximately 15,000 garment workers went on strike. And throughout the day, they were joined by another 5,000 or so, swelling that number to about 20,000. Now, from the next day's New York Times, quote, headline, waste strike on, 18,000 women out. They quit work in factories here on a signal from union leaders. Some employers give in. Quote, Every available hall on the east side was filled yesterday with striking shirtwaist girls who quit work throughout the city in obedience to the strike vote passed at the mass meeting at Cooper Union and three other halls on Monday night. There are some men among the strikers, but they were insignificant in numbers compared to the vast outpouring of women and girls from the shirtwaist factories. Here's a logistical question, though. Did they all go into work the next day? It's not like they could just send like a mask, a group email, a group text. Or a WhatsApp. Like, yeah. Can we like meet at this place and this place? Right. How did this actually roll out? Okay. Well, hold on. It goes in. The article even goes into the details because I, I'm sure the readers were captivated by this. According to the plan that they had hatched, you know, at their meeting at Cooper Union, quote, they went to work as usual. And at 10 o'clock, an agent of the union in each factory gave the signal and the strike was on. At a waste factory at 536 Broadway, where a strike occurred before and was called off, only 50 of the working force of 450 girls obeyed the signal at first. But then a young fellow who gave the signal pushed a button and turned off the power. The lights went out and there was a stampede from the place, in spite of the efforts of a number of four women to prevent it. This is like pandemonium. Well, it sounds really exciting. Although, let's just back up and note that that article mentions that there were 450 women working in that factory. Okay, that factory, that building at 536 Broadway, it mentions, is still standing. It's on the east side of Broadway near Spring Street today. It had been constructed in 1901. And I think you know it because today on the ground floor is a Club Monaco. (laughs) Oh, clothing. Yeah. I mean, well, right. In the old days, they could have just passed it down a (laughs) dumbwaiter. So 450 women leave Club Monaco. I'm sorry, leave leave the building that has the Club Monaco in it today. Where did they go? Where did they gather at? Well, many of them headed for various union halls around town. Uh, The Times reported that the most popular was the hall over at 151 Clinton Street, which was home to several of the offices for the unions, including the Women Wastemakers Union and the Shirt Wastemakers Union. The leaders actually had uh, paperwork that was ready for the factory owners to sign off on with the new conditions already. They just had to show up at the union offices, sign off, and their workers could go back to work. And did any of the employers show up? Well, some did. According to that article, 11 employers signed off on the paperwork that day while 50 more were making plans, you know, to sign to sign it. But they apparently had a really hard time getting in and up to the right offices because the staircases and the hallways and everything were so jam-packed with these striking workers. I love the solidarity here. It even sounds a little fun. 
honestly. But this industry is so segmented. There's so many different parts to it. How are they able to speak in one voice uh, with their demands? Fragmented in terms of, right, different kinds of shops, different sizes, you Mm -hmm. know, giant factories or smaller shops. There was an alliance of businesses called the Associated Waste and Dress Manufacturers, but they represented different owners. And the strikers were trying to raise conditions, generally speaking, across the entire industry. Mm -hmm. According to the report in The Times, quote, there are general demands applicable to all, the principle of which are an advance of 20 percent for peace workers and 15 percent for weekly workers. Uh, They were also demanding a 52 hour working week. They were demanding pay for legal holidays and not more than two hours in any day to be worked as overtime. The article also mentions that, quote, the strike is expected to be completed today. But of course, it didn't end at sunset. No, this strike would continue on into December and then on through the bitter cold of January and into February. And while this is referred to as the uprising of 20,000, it's estimated that 30,000 people would participate over the period of the strike, mostly women although some of the higher-level men also joined in, and 90% of the strikers were Jewish. But let me get this straight. Some of the employers actually did sign off on these demands pretty quickly, right? Yeah, some of them did, especially from the smaller firms, because they were desperate to get back to work. They were losing revenue every day, and they weren't big enough to support that. But others, especially the larger factories, would stick it out and hire other workers, you know, to to fill their places. These major factory owners, they, of course, you know, they had many tools in their arsenal of fighting back against this, of course. And I'm sure they employed all of these tools against the strikers. As the author Mike Wallace points out in Greater Gotham, yeah, they were hiring thugs. They were also hiring prostitutes from Allen Street's red light district to actually attack the strikers. And this was meant to to shame the women on strike. It was meant to bully them. It was meant to give the policemen a sort of excuse for having them arrested. And more than 700 women would be arrested. And again, what were the charges here? Well, you know, for loitering, for prostitution, for disorderly conduct, for anything that the that the police officer could come up with, basically. Many of them were sent to jail, and dozens were actually sent out to the workhouse on Blackwell's Island. One thing that I'm still uh, hazy on, if this is an 11-week strike, this mm-hmm. is a really long time, how are these women supporting themselves, all of these women supporting themselves if they're out there in the freezing cold participating in the strike. And not working. Well, they were getting support through their union and through other activists as well. They were getting, you know, donations from various charities. There were fundraisers that were happening on, you know, the Lower East Side. So they were trying to support themselves as well. They were also supported by the Women's Trade Union League, uh, which was headed by Mary Dreyer, mm-hmm. who you had mentioned, uh, the prominent lady who had, woman who had been arrested. This group was really pushing you know, for better working conditions for women, and it, it now included some very well-off members of society as well, who were, like Mary, who were allies to this cause. And interestingly, many of the members of this group were also instrumental at the same time in the suffrage fight. It's not surprising that these two causes would be joined and would have the same 
figures uh, involved with, with both struggles. Two causes that would really bring women into the street mm-hmm. to march. And some of these women were from extremely prominent families. For example, as Mike Wallace points out, Alva Belmont, the widow of Oliver Belmont, the son of August Belmont, he of the Subway Fortune. Mm-hmm. Alva's involved. Anne Morgan, she had a very famous father named JP. Sure. <laughs> and, and then Anne's friends, including Arabella Huntington and Helen Taft. She had a father named President Taft. You know, so these are extremely prominent women um, who were lending support by donating money. Some were also joining them on the picket lines, sometimes getting arrested, as you mentioned, leading to very awkward scenes in courtrooms, leading to lots of press coverage. This would seem to kind of change the tone of the strike here, because all of a sudden, if you have the wives and daughters of the upper crust involved here, you know, Mm -hmm. it takes on a, a different urgency, I guess, for like many New Yorkers. And of course, these women had access to high profile spaces, high profile buildings, for instance, where they would hold rallies. And for example, they held a massive rally at the Hippodrome, the the huge theater on Sixth Avenue. One of the biggest rooms in New York. (laughs) At the time, yeah. On December 5th, 1909, they held a women's rally, okay, that brought together 8,000 people, including suffragettes and also those concerned with working rights for women. But another amazing event that I have to tell you about happened a few weeks later on January 2nd, middle of the strike, bitter cold, at Carnegie Hall. This was widely covered in the press, for example, in the next day's New York Daily Tribune, Mm -hmm. where there's a photo of 11 women with signs pinned to their fronts that read, Workhouse Prisoner. And that article from the (laughs) Tribune begins, quote, 20 young women with placards pinned across their bosoms inscribed workhouse prisoner looked down in a superior sort of way from the Carnegie Hall platform last night on an audience of 4,000 admirers of both sexes. In back of them were grouped some 350 poor things who could wear only the insignia arrested. It certainly seems a case of unfair discrimination on the part of the magistrates. It was a mass meeting called to protest against the treatment accorded shirtwaist strikers by the police and the judiciary. So they have now clearly gained popular support here. So how did the strike end? Did the employers, did they all give in to these conditions? Well, some, remember, had already signed off on the agreements, but the strike continued on. They had sort of hit an impasse over certain conditions. It was finally called off on February 15th, 1910. The, the negotiations between the union and the associated waste and dress manufacturers, they just they couldn't reach an agreement on whether or not factories could be open shops, you know, that allowed both unionized and non-union members. And nobody was budging. So the unions finally uh, had to call off the strike. But they had achieved a great number of important improvements into the workplace, right? Yes, including a 52-hour work week that they were demanding, some paid holidays, and some other benefits as well, including the right to be unionized in these shops. These agreed-upon conditions would transform the working conditions for thousands of women in New York City. And please tell me that they didn't need to bring their sewing machines to work anymore, no, right? No, the, the supplies and the machines were provided by the employer. Oh, that was also granted. Thank goodness. 
in a city where one of the tallest buildings is the Singer Sewing Machine building at this time, I would hope that they would have sewing machines provided for them. But also, just back to that demand, you know, that employers could no longer discriminate against union members. That was so key because according to an excellent article on the strike that was written by Tony Michaels uh, for the Jewish Women's Archive, by the end of the strike, about 85% of shirtwaist workers in New York City had joined that union. And as Michaels points out, this strike would go on to inspire many more uprisings uh, in the garment industry, including more that very summer in 1910 by cloak makers. The, the result would be that the, the needle trades would become one of the best organized trades in the United States. That cloakmakers strike in the summer of 1910, which would be called the Great Revolt in later years, was also kind of a major catalyst for major changes in workers' rights here. It was resolved with similar mixed success, actually, on September 10th, 1910. And this resolution became known as the Protocol of Peace and is a kind of a, a, a major cornerstone in American legal rights. And it was negotiated by the lawyer Louis D. Brandeis, who would later become a Supreme Court justice. Uh-huh. But big picture here, because of these strikes, working conditions had improved. Yes, and so... People went back to their factories. For instance, let's take the triangle, for instance. Uh, Workers were met with improved conditions, higher wages, union recognition, and and better hours here, of course. However, it wasn't a perfect picture by any means. There is still great distrust between the management and the employees, as you could imagine, right, after this contentious strike, they had a long way to go before getting to conditions that we today would consider acceptable. It it was these contentions plus the inadequate administration of building codes during this period. All of this came into play on Saturday afternoon, March 25th, 1911, here at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. A fire at the Triangle started on the eighth floor of the factory, this factory near Washington Square, and within moments of the fire starting, it overtook the floors above the eighth floor, all of them packed with workers. These workers tried to escape down the stairways here, you know, they down to the street, only to find that the factory bosses had actually locked them inside. So then trapped, suffocated, and blinded by the smoke, Many of these people threw themselves out of the windows towards fresh air, hoping that they might survive the fall. Others attempted to escape by the fire escape, but it crumpled under the heat and dozens perished there. In total, 146 workers died that day. Almost all of them poor immigrant women, and many of them had been on the picket lines with the tens of thousands of women in the uprising of the 20,000. And for more information on the Shirtwaist Factory Fire, you have an excellent podcast that you did many, many years ago, in fact, all the way back in 2008, mm-hmm. on the fire. But it just it shows that still, this factory, for example, was still locking many of its doors in order to force people out for their bag inspection. These factories were going to follow the agreements that were made by the strike. 
But there were still many, many dangerous conditions that workers faced in this period. And so whatever happened to Clara? Well, it's not a surprise that she would move on to the suffrage movement. She had made a bunch of friends in the suffrage movement during the strike, uh, fighting for women's right to vote, which would then be achieved nationwide 100 years ago this year via the 19th Amendment, which was adopted on August 26, 1920. But that's 1920. What did she do in the meantime between the, the strike in 1909 and 1920? Well, I guess we might say she settled down, actually. In 1913, she got married. She moved to Brooklyn. She had some kids. She would pop in now and again to important labor battles. She was, after all, really very, very good at this yes. and very well known. Right. So she would be called in at various points during the decades. We should add that she was a very ardent socialist. Later in life, she was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, in fact, to quote, to quote from her New York Times obit, which, which was actually just published in 2018, you know how they're catching up with women they, they forgot. Quote, after a trip to the Soviet Union in 1951, she praised Soviet health care and education. She was subsequently summoned to Washington to testify and her passport was revoked. It was only years later that she admitted reluctantly that she had been wrong about the Soviet Union. Clara Lemek Shevelson, believe it or not, lived to be 96 years old. She died on July 12th, 1982. But Tom... Wow. That just goes to show that union membership is good for your health. (laughs) Which brings us to the conclusion of the story of the strike and the life of Clara Lemek, but certainly not the conclusion of women's social and political battles here in New York City, including that battle for suffrage. Now, that, along with many other moments in women's history, are told in a brand new exhibition at the New York Historical Society called Women March, which just recently opened and runs through August 30th, 2020. We're going to head up there now to the Historical Society to check out the exhibit and to speak with the curator, Valerie Paley, who is the director of the New York Historical Society's Center for Women's History. So we visited the exhibition Women March on a Wednesday afternoon, and the soundscape is remarkable. It feels like you're in galleries just brimming with energy. The exhibition features artifacts from 200 years of women's organizing, from the abolition movement through to the 1960s, and even to the first big women's march, which took place in 2017. And of course, there's several stops relating to women's working rights. Now, after our tour, we met up with Valerie Paley in a conference room at the New York Historical Society with a bright view overlooking Central Park. Uh, Could you, you know, we just walked through uh, the exhibit and had a wonderful time walking through, especially since we just told the story of the, the strike in 1909. Would you mind giving our listeners a very quick overview of what this exhibit covers? Uh, The exhibit Women March, which just opened, is an exhibit that commemorates the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which uh, uh, removed sex as an obstacle to the vote. But what we try to do is not show a centennial that is a, a quick progression to 1920 and then the end, but rather show a very long trajectory between 1820 and our present day, and to see how women's collective action really impacts political movements. 
And you actually go way back in this exhibit. It starts in the 1820s, right? I mean, 200 years of, of women uniting, organizing for their own well-being and for their own rights. That's exactly right. I mean, I think a lot of the time people look to uh, sort of watershed moments or very famous people to anchor a conversation about history. Uh, for example, we have like Gloria Steinem, more or less in the you know our own time. We have Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony or Sojourner Truth in a prior time. We have. 1848 as an important moment in the women's movement and women's suffrage. This is the date of uh, Seneca Falls, the convention that sort of put the idea of women's suffrage on the table. But what we try to do is is give our visitors a, a broader and longer context. Uh, 1848 didn't spring out of nowhere, nor did Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Gloria Steinem, for that matter. So we start our exhibit in the 1820s and show how women's collective action, even long prior to the vote, was a meaningful piece of the new experiment that was the American Republic. And in terms of the story that we've just been telling of the strike of 1909, the shirtwaist strike, how does that, how do you see that fitting into this larger narrative? Well, the the story that we tell in Women March is predicated on the whole idea of women's collective action. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be uh, someone who's out on the streets uh, giving speeches. All you need to do is just join together and affect change, you know, crowdsource uh, a movement, if you will, by showing up and speaking out. And I think that certainly the kind of activism through women's collective action that occurred uh, not only in the 19th century but in the early 20th around uh, the labor movement is very much uh, part and parcel of they used the same tactics that were used in the suffrage and uh, they borrowed from each other as did you know peace parades the same sort of thing if women came out and defied sort of social convention by marching and screaming on the streets. Women of, of all stripes and classes, uh, maybe some change could be affected. And certainly some of those tactics were of the labor movement were co-opted by the suffrage movement as well. I think that there's something that can be forgotten sometimes when you see these wonderful images of like, like a phalanx of women, a group of women marked the power of that walk of them walking down the street. You can sometimes forget the kinds of the risks that these individuals were taking by joining into these groups in a period when they were shattering the roles of what women were allowed to do. So let's, just, let's just say, let's pick 1909 or 1919 or anything during that decade. What were some of the risks that women faced to join into marches like this, whether it be a silent parade or whether it be a suffrage march? Imagine that in this period, it, it wasn't too many years prior that women were not allowed to be walking around on the streets unchaperoned. They were thought to be prostitutes if they were. That's kind of unbelievable, which is one reason why, of course, Ladies Mile and the whole you know department store social movement truly did liberate women in a way to go to department stores and, and shop alone. So 20 or so years later, after the advent of Ladies Mile, you have women marching in the streets. That's just not what proper women did. And it showed 
kind of how pissed off they were and and how much they really did want to draw attention to their to their cause be it labor suffrage uh, peace movement and certainly when upper middle class women joined in the in the fight that really helped matters it drew the media and a different kind of attention to uh, face it with the women's uh, suffrage movement it, it began ostensibly in, you know, 1840s, 1850s. We're talking almost a century on, and they're still fighting this fight. So it, it breathed a new kind of energy and dynamism and youthfulness to, uh, to the cause, and that, in, in many ways, uh, the suffrage movement has, has much to thank the uh, labor movement for that kind of uh, tactic. You had mentioned also uh, the media and the role that the media played. And, you know, when you're walking through this exhibit at the Historical Society, one thing that really strikes you is the projected images. There are moving images, motion pictures of women marching in the streets, perhaps some things taken from, you know, newsreels. And the fact is, these were being filmed. And we're, we're able to see them 100 years later. Yes. Uh, these marches. And it's extraordinary. Uh, it really is extraordinary, and it, it's wonderful that the film was such that we could project it just about life-size. Yeah. Uh, what we wanted to affect was the feeling of marching among these people in the past to give a sort of visceral punch to the gut about what they were marching for and, and its its meaning and value as we see the same kind of tactic being used in the present day. Well, actually, yeah, when we turn the corner at the end, we don't want to give too much away, but you, you know, you get to the end and it should be probably no surprise that we see placards and signs from the 2017 January Women's March, uh, Women's Marches that were held all, all over the country. Um, and Greg just froze and said, whoa, he said, that is really powerful, you know, because you see those signs hanging as if, and they're kind of moving, you know, it's sort of alive. It's yeah, we were cool. we were so lucky that the uh, air vent happened to be right there. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, I really wa- I wanted them to move and bingo. It just so happened that that was they were positioned perfectly. Serendipity, <laughs> very much so. It's funny how this happens sometimes in exhibition yeah. design. I think many people who are going to come to this exhibit are going to be are going to go all the way to the end and say to themselves, "Oh, I was part of this," mm-hmm. and so that's really the power because you're being carried. A- on this journey of several different political movements through this whole thing. Exactly, and that's really what we were trying to do, uh, show that while very useful for its time, the idea of first wave feminism, i.e. what happened in the mid-19th century, and second wave, what happened about a century or more after in the 1960s, really there was a lot going on both before in the middle and after. So we show 200 years as a very important way of of looking at not only the big benchmarks uh, that we know from the history books, but how women's collective action never really did cease in any way. There was always something they were marching, drawing attention to, and fighting for. Well, Valerie Paley, thank you so much for joining us and for appearing on the Bowery Boys podcast. Please come. We're, we're, we're so excited to have more and more visitors and introduce them to this really important history. So thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. And we want to thank Valerie Paley for speaking with us. And thanks, of course, to the New York Historical Society for allowing us to roam around through this really fascinating exhibition on women's history. For photos and for more about 
the uprising of the 20,000 and the shirtwaist strike of 1909, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter at Bowery Boys, and Instagram at Bowery Boys NYC. We'd like to give a huge thank you to the more than 900 people who support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We can only make this show our full-time jobs because of you and because of your support. Thank you so much for joining us on Patreon. Now, for those who support us at the $5 level and above, you, of course, receive our after-show conversation called The Takeout. And the one for this episode will be very interesting because we're going to talk about two actually unrelated things to the, to the shirtwaist, one of them being our new partnership with the New York Historical Society. We're going to give more information about that. And then we're going to give some insight <laughs> into something that happened, let's just say, on our website that was um, a, a, a startling development uh you'll have to you'll have to listen Uh, to the takeout to find more information on that uh, let's just say we're going to yes open up the doors a little let people into the backstage area and then of course uh, a shout out to our patrons charles a and john m from manhattan rachel from new jersey scott j and kim from pennsylvania stacy from florida dm from houston texas and terry from new mexico thank you all so much for your support And thank you for listening as we join Clara and her colleagues in the streets of the Lower East Side. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.